Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast. My name is Karen. And I'm Allison, and we're two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. Today, our guest is Stacy Collins. Stacy is a research and instruction librarian at Simmons University in Boston, where she's the liaison librarian for social work and children's literature. Stacy developed an anti-oppression guide available through her library and has delivered several talks and processing workshops on equity work in many facets of library and information science. Outside of librarianship, Stacy is a children's literature scholar and reviewer, addressing the legacy of whiteness and cis-heteropatriarchy in publishing, reviewing, and critical scholarship, and the role of all of these in the production of diverse books for children and young adults. We are so excited to talk to Stacy about anti-oppression and librarianship today, so thanks for joining us. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for having me. Our interview with Stacy Collins was really fascinating, and it was quite long, so we've decided to split the episode in two. This is going to be part one, mostly focusing on what anti-oppression is and Stacy's work on LibGuides. And then part two is going to talk about belonging, safety, and police presence in libraries. <laughs> anything else you want to add in introduction um, or that you want listeners to know about you before we get started? I think the only thing missing from from that little bio is that I am also um, a facilitator with the Anti-Racism Collaborative here in Massachusetts, which uh, isn't directly related to libraries or children's literature. Um, It's a whole third sphere of work for discussing and uh, bringing anti-racism education to local community building, but also consulting with some of the bigger folks in um, and businesses in Massachusetts, um, which oddly enough ends up sort of capturing some publishing folks and some library folks, which is pretty cool. And with the Anti-Racism Collaborative, I actually do coordinate sort of the library-specific curriculum that we have there. So it all ends up tying together, but that's the only piece that's there. Cool. Thank you. Stacey, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and this like area of interest? Like, How did you or why did you decide to pursue the kind of work that you're doing? Absolutely. So this is, if I actually sat down to think and, and talk all the way through it, it would be a really long and probably ultimately boring story. But I will say that a good like 70, 80 percent of it is me sort of stumbling up on, upon things, upon scholarship that seemed really interesting and me being able to bring it to work and then also sort of uh, happening to have access to opportunities that I got to that were sort of allowed me to pursue various things that were of interest and in getting to combine a bunch of things. So off top, my my three sort of spheres of work, librarianship, children's literature, um, anti-racism, anti-oppression education, don't like off the cuff seem to go particularly together, um, other than the fact that I do them all, but actually they end up intertwining in a bunch of really interesting ways. Um, and the work and discussions and problems that are happening in one um, are reflected very much in the others and they actually tie together. So when one when one thing is having a discussion, when one area is, is doing work or pushing in one direction, it actually ends up affecting what's happening in some of the other spheres as well, which is cool. But at the basic level, how I got into this was I graduated from undergrad. I was certain I wanted to go into publishing. Turns out I was wrong. Just like when I started undergrad and thought I was going to be a marine biologist, I was wrong. 
Um, and at a children's literature symposium, which I think it only lasted a couple of years, but it was in, it was right by my undergrad. So I actually went, was able to go in person. I sat on a panel where folks were sort of asking, so diversity in children's literature is a problem. How do we ultimately impact it? If publishers are publishing what the people buy and the people can only buy what the publishers publish, how do we break into that cycle and relationship? And everyone on the panel just sort of was like, looked at each other and then said, oh, librarians and other folks who sort of are mediators of books to the end users, which are typically kids and teens and have sort of that influence for the publishing industry, but aren't necessarily like direct buyers that booksellers are selling to. Um, and I found that really interesting. And I was like, so librarianship is interesting. And I literally went back across the street to my reference librarian and was like, what would you think about me coming, becoming a reference librarian? And she looked at me and said, oh, my God, I've been waiting. I didn't want to I didn't want to like influence you while you were here for four years. You were so dedicated to publishing. And then she was like, but yes, I think librarianship would work really well. And then a program that combined the two, librarianship and children's literature, sort of fell out of the Google sky. Um, and here I am. <laughs> and anti-oppression, again, has been something that has popped up more and more as calls for um, addressing issues of equity and historical context of why we why we have homogeneity in these fields and lack diversity in these fields has popped up among all of them. And it's ended up dovetailing into a little very complex career. <laughs> That's really cool. That's a great um, origin story. <laughs> so you have all these interests floating around. And in from what I understand, reading online, you can correct me if I have any of these dates and stuff wrong. But in 2016, you created this lib guide on anti-oppression. So for listeners who might not be familiar with this, can you give like a little brief overview of what anti-oppression is and also what's a lib guide? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Anti-oppression, it's probably easier to start with oppression. So oppression, um, which some folks typically will, will sometimes think of in simply, they will think of it as a simpler phenomenon than what it really is. Oppression, at it, it can be simply remembered as prejudice plus power. Um, so it's not just the fact that someone has biases and prejudices towards another group of folks that are not like them, that are different in some way. It's also that that person has power or has a position of privilege within a system that disenfranchises that group. So if you want to think of it along, always think of it in terms of power, actually is the way to say it. So oppression is about using power to disempower, to marginalize, sometimes completely eradicate social, uh, a, an entire social group, um, usually, almost always, to the benefit and um, continued power and privileging of another social group. It ends up sort of sounding very binary, like, oh, if they're this social group against this social group, and that's actually part of the system, right, that that's us versus them. Anti-oppression is rec not only recognizing that those power relationships exist, that um, that oppression as a process, the actual disenfranchisement and harm that is ongoing and historical, not only recognizing that it's happening, um, but also challenging it at the multiple levels that exist. So we have oppression operating, certainly at individual levels, right, we all sit with our personal biases, the prejudices we've been steeped in since birth, et cetera, and uh, thoughts that we necessarily don't always challenge when they sort of pop up um, as you're sitting watching Netflix. And also lots of assumptions, that's the other thing. Um, in the individual, you, there's lots of things you don't question as you encounter them because they've always been the status quo. Um, you also have the interpersonal level, which is where folks, um, individuals are interacting with each other or groups are interacting with each other. Certainly lots of prejudice happens there. We can see that every day. But then there's also the more invisible 
institutional and cultural levels that oppression operates, where these same sort of power dynamics and the um, the goal of empowering one group over another along multiple axes of identity sort of operate. And at the institutional cultural level is what we, when we talk about systemic oppression, that's what we mean. The idea that, you know, some cartoonish villain who's super excited to harm other people and sit on a pile of gold or sit on a pile of power, even though those people I do think actually exist, um, they don't have to exist for oppression to continue into perpetuity. Hello, this is Karen from Editing. The audio became a little crackly, so I've transcribed what Stacy said, and I'm going to read it here so that it's easier on your ears, and then when the audio improves, I'll cut back to Stacy. So she says that generational oppression is a product that was designed very robustly, very sophisticatedly to keep oppressing and pillaging one group and disenfranchising one another. We don't actually need racists or ableists or transphobes. We don't need individual people being cruel for oppression to continue. Anti-oppression is both recognizing it and challenging it at all levels to start eradicating and dismantling the systems of harm. It's a very long-winded way, even though it's actually a very simple idea, uh, but it takes a while to lay it all out, and that's kind of the problem, that it's so complex that it's easier to just ignore it rather than talk about it and think about how to challenge it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you asked about LibGuides. LibGuides is a, is a platform essentially for lots of different purposes, mainly used by libraries, um, although technically any institution can sign up for them. But I, I am very per- personally a fan of LibGuides. I can't even fully explain to you why, other than the fact that when I am very excited about a subject or an idea or, um, I don't know, even sometimes even a course, I love sort of telling people about it. One great example of this would be Star Trek. I will sit and talk to you about Star Trek until you punch me in the face. So tools like LibGuides that are... Um, very much like like WordPress, uh, any sort of what you see is what you get sort of platform that allows you to put content out on the internet. It, the guide function is meant to be to provide pathfinders for other folks that you want to get information. Awesome, thank you. Your anti-oppression lib guide brings these two things together into this beautiful like web-based guide full of links, resources stuff like that. Other librarians can borrow from it. But if somebody has an interest in that topic, they can follow all these different pathways into it, which is very, very cool. <laughs> and it's a great LibGuide. It's got lots of lots of fantastic... We'll definitely put a link in here so people can go check oh, it out. Thank you. <laughs> you know, techni- technically, it breaks it breaks almost every rule from like your user experience class that talks about the, the best way to build a guide or any kind of online resource, right? You want to you don't want too much stuff below the important things below the digital fold. There shouldn't be big lists of links because the, the more links in a list, the less likely anyone will click on any of them. It breaks every rule ever. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's also a guide that as a structure and as a purpose is kind of weird. So it's okay that it breaks the typical rules because it's not typical. So what prompted you to begin working on that? Like this lib guide specifically and who, like, who were you thinking of when you were creating it? Um, yeah, what was the inspiration for it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, my inspiration for it is actually kind of ongoing. So I actually started working on this as a, when I held an interim position at the library, I now have a full-time position at, and it actually launched the same month that I started in the full-time position. So, you know, as an interim, as an interim employee, I had, like, there were very specific things I focused on. So I had a lot more 
not free time, but you know, if I'm sitting at the reference desk and there's no one there with questions, I have a lot of time I can do something else with. So playing around with LibGuides was something I was already doing. And in November of 2015, um, along with a number of other schools across the nation, our uh, our black student organization, our undergraduate student black black student organization, and and a number of other um, affinity based student groups brought the ten demand to the Simmons administration, president and provost specifically. I had the opportunity to sort of be there when they delivered them, um, and afterward, the the response one of the responses was a series of community gatherings where folks. It actually most for most of them were used to either provide updates about what we were doing to address the ten demands as well as students um, sort of talking and expanding further on their experiences of uh, racism in particular and oppression in general across a number of different sort of identities, um, either at the hands of faculty or peers or both. And I I sat in on those community gatherings. I listened. I heard a lot of familiar things. Um, I heard a lot of things that I had experienced myself that I had seen even as a graduate student. But I also heard this secondary problem where students were talking about experiencing racism, tokenization, what have you, but then also being tasked with explaining it to other people or um, sometimes proving it, right? Explain to me how this interaction was racist. Prove to me that that's tokenization or that tokenization is a bad thing. Um, sometimes tokenization is, is framed as this great thing. We're uplifting great this great person. Um, it's like, yeah, but you're it's dehumanizing at the same time. And so the this, this secondary burden piece was the one that I was sort of focused on, um, because what it at the base of it is sort is an information need, right? And that's librarians. We love we love information needs, and 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 addressing them. So what I was hearing was these students um, are encountering people who don't know what racism is, how it operates, the ways that it can look. They also have no real clear idea how easily it is for them to perpetuate it, and the idea that the systems and power dynamics that enable it are are everywhere, inside a classroom, in in the hallways, um, in between interactions with individuals. So I wanted to create something that ostensibly it is there to educate the Simmons community about these issues um, that were being talked about primarily on our campus through the 10 demands and it's expanded over time. But really, really what I created it for was so that the the students who experienced this kind of oppression on campus, because I couldn't stop that, right? I can't, I can't directly address that at every point it's happening. But when these students encounter things like this and then have the sort of insult to injury of being asked to prove or explain or educate on top of experiencing harm, instead of putting out that labor, instead of having that extra labor, they could point to this resource instead. Um, so if the person is in good faith and they're actually interested in learning, they can go to the they can go to this libguide instead of burdening the person that they've accidentally, ideally accidentally harmed. Um, and anybody that's not that's not in good faith, that's sort of, you know, asking to, for it to be proved so that they can debate and argue your existence and your experiences, you still have a reason to walk away from them, right? You don't have to stand there and worry if I don't do it, no one will, etc. Um, you can just say, hey, if you're interested in learning more. You can you can look over here, but I want you to know this was a problem, and I'm going to walk away now. So when I say the inspiration is ongoing, it's because the problems are ongoing. Um, and every every day, week, month, semester, uh, school year, we hear about in, um, about folks experiencing issues. And even though the LibGuide has been adopted into the curriculum, folks are using it as a pedagogical resource. Folks are using it for sort of some staff training uh, conversations, that kind of thing. It's become a really 
useful resource for the work that Simmons is trying to do at the at the foundation of it. It is also helping to ensure that folks that are experiencing oppression on the daily um, do not have to have the extra burden of educating people. They have a resource they can point folks to. And at the end of the day, if that was all it was good for, I'd be perfectly happy. That's pretty amazing um, and really fascinating. Do you want to talk about some of the challenges, as I'm sure there probably were, um, and maybe like some of the highlights as well in, in making this guide? I mean, so there are obviously some internal challenges because I spent a lot of time figuring out what's the, what is the best way, for, what's, how do we, how do we really create something that's actually going to have impact? Because up until this point, like I say, like November 2015, when the 10 demands happened at our school and a, a number of neighboring schools, uh, long months before this, we had had other demands coming from across, from, from student bodies across the nation, um, sometimes resulting in administrators, um, resigning and, and other kinds of like sort of massive impact. So like what, what resource could I really hope to create that would be actually helpful, um, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be sort of reinventing the wheel. And that sort of is where I sat with it and then realized I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I can just show people where the wheels are. Um, so the the guide really is is more curate curation than creation, which I like because it means it's flexible and adaptable and it can change as things change, as more information becomes available, um, as different groups get um, more opportunity to have their voices heard and whatnot. Um, things can be added, things can be taken away, which is which is great. The challenge with that, with that, however, is that I also found that uh, almost automatically, uh, the in creating the guide, I found myself focusing on the education of people who don't know about oppression, right? Um, which is not a bad thing. This is very, it's very important that people learn about oppression, understand how it operates, so that they can recognize it and challenge it um, instead of going on having assumptions and and whatnot. But if if the only resources out there for for learning about and challenging oppression, if the only resources we have in the anti-oppression um, sort of playbook are about educating the people who don't experience oppression in on you know every day, um, who don't wake up the target of various systems that are extremely harmful, then we've sort of accidentally reinforced the system that says these folks belong on the margins and we should center the needs of these already empowered groups, right? And so. I ended up, I ended up having to sort of go back and spend like months. This took, this took months. A guide that really should have taken maybe a couple of weeks because I'm pulling together so many things that already exist took months to, to figure out an appropriate structure. Um, and right now I'm still not like, I still want to change it. That would be inclusive of the, the sort of needs and conversations and centering of, um, the folks that live in the oppression. And so every page of the guide now has the, the, a, a section that is for the folks who are members of those communities. So that was that was that was one challenge in, in, in building the thing to begin with. It it took ages. Um, I also as I was building it, I, I started building it before I had quote unquote permission to build it. Um, I really had um, sort of the freedom to, to fill my time with whatever sort of projects um, felt valuable both to me and as something the library could ultimately use. Um, and when I eventually did um, tell a supervisor, so this is what I'm working on and this is what I, what I hope it, it can be used for. It's weird. This isn't, this isn't like a subject guide. It's not really, a, it's not a course guide. Like I, it, I don't know where it will fit, but this is what I'm doing. And what he, what he said was, I love this. If anybody has a problem that you're making it, tell them that I told you you could do it. And the reason he said that was because he was leaving in a week. Um, so to this day, I still say, 
that, you know, Rex told me I could do it. So it's forever. It's forever. Okay. External challenges have been one, getting it out there to the community to say, Hey, this exists because when folks are, when folks are living with oppression, when folks are trying to, uh, you know, deal with, deal with harm from teachers and classmates who they're also trying to learn from, um, to graduate, to, you know, to get their paper and leave and, and go about their, their career and whatnot. Um, and expand their their knowledge bases. Um, there's not a lot of room left to focus on. Oh, did the library make a little thing? That's that's great. Um, and so, like having to sort of go out very intentionally and um, I don't know, sell it sounds like the the wrong way to phrase it. Um, but essentially, like a little roadshow of like, hi, this exists. It's here. It's here for you. Um, it is here for you to point to. It has resources for you, but also you don't ever have to look at it. You can just tell people that it exists um, when you encounter folks that don't seem to know about XYZ. And then, of course, there's the big, big challenge, which was when the alt-right discovered us, which was hilarious. Sarcasm. That's sarcasm. Wasn't hilarious. Wasn't great. Looking back on it, it's funnier because we're not in it anymore. But yes, yeah, so most, most of the challenges have been about um, making sure the guide was doing what I, what we were looking for it to do, and then getting it actually into sort of the hands and in front of the in front of the faces of the folks that sort of need to see it. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting about incorporating resources for people experiencing different kinds of oppression because that's something that I really yeah love about the guide when I went when I was looking through it. Um, there's some great stuff there. So you you just mentioned this when the alt right found the uh, <laughs> found the lib guide. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's a there's a 2019 school library journal kind of about that. I I was curious if you wanted to tell us more about it and specifically something with that that I'm interested in. The the library journal article kind of talks about um I guess you and some other people who'd experienced that kind of backlash for other projects coming together and talking about that and mm-hmm. um kind of doing some organizing amongst yourselves really about how to face that kind of backlash and and, and I'm curious about that because I could imagine that other people might be going through that now for, for things they're working on or might in future. And um, yeah, if there was anything about that you wanted to share. Yeah. So the, yes, the, the school library journal article you're talking about, they, they essentially did a write up of a panel from the ALA annual um, where a number of us got together to sort of talk about our experiences with being targeted by various alt-right outlets, campus reform pops up a lot because I think most of us were academic librarians. So the folks sort of being the watchdogs for higher education typically came, would come down on us hard. So my experience with it was two years, well, 18 months after this guide had been on the scene, right? It's, it's not brand new. Um, there wasn't a ton that I had recently changed about it, but the, the uh, I don't, I hesitate to call it a mag like a like a news outlet um but it's called campus reform don't go to their website please don't give them please don't give them the clicks and views but essentially they they operate by ostensibly they are about uh, uncovering liberal bias in higher education what they actually do in practice is target anyone who they view as quote unquote anti-conservative or progressive and and target them usually usually with a lot of dog whistles. So they'll write up an article that really is just stating facts. They don't really say any, they don't really offer any value judgments per se, but they know full well that their audience sees this as a dog whistle to like, hey, isn't this ridiculous or terrible or isn't this maybe a threat to quote unquote your way of life? Go ahead and dogpile on them and 
uh, dox them and harass them and whatnot so they stop, um, which is exactly what happens. Now, my name is not on the guide, although I have done conversations like this. Like it's, I don't hide the fact that I'm the person who made the guide. It's just that on the guide itself, there is no mention of a specific librarian. There is only, there's only the Simmons library. Um, and that's meant so that, um, if I were to ever leave Simmons or I would like for the, for the three months that I was out on parental leave so that it, it, the guide can continue functioning, um, and folks can like ask to reuse it or ask questions or make suggestions without me having to be there. But because there was no specific library mentioned, the whole library got this backlash of folks. We even, uh, the, somebody even called the president's office to say that he was, uh, because of this guide, because of the library, because of this guide, he was going to make sure that his grandson did not attend undergraduate education at Simmons University, which was great because he already wasn't invited. Simmons, <laughs> Simmons does not, does not admit Sismen to the undergraduate program. So that was fun. Um, very funny, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. So it was, it was a lot of like being threatened with a good time kind of, kind of things. Um, but the backlash was pretty, it was, it was a lot. It was draining. It was exhausting. It, it, it also, it felt terrible for how many folks ended up having to deal with it because the most accessible way to contact the library is through our chat, um, the, the desk phone and our, and our reference email. And so the student workers or folks who were, um, you know, on the desk for a shift, would have to like slog through this ridiculous um, response to a guide that literally says, please treat people as people. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was frustrating. It was a lot. It, I, I was on edge all the time about like, you know, it's only 10 seconds from now I'll be, I'll be fully doxxed. And do I have, do I feel like I would be safe and whatnot? And so on this panel, I, the folks who, who were on it with me were, uh, had, had experienced, uh, uh, Oh, yeah, more extreme, more extreme sort of attacks because they as individuals were outed. So uh, April Hascock, for example, who has a blog that her name is on, it's it's very findable and whatnot. So she was attacked individually. Um, Nicole Cook was attacked, um, not was attacked for work she hadn't even done yet. She was she had received a grant to do work. <laughs> and hadn't done it yet, but because it was a diversity grant and a, and a, and a diversity, a quote unquote diversity project that she received the grant for, huge, a huge backlash um, against her personally and, um, you know, people emailing her on campus and whatnot. So that kind of backlash and response is terrible. The, the panel was to both to bring it to light, like, hi, do you know that this is happening? Do you know that your colleagues experience this? And not just that they experience it, but they experience it for doing the work that the that the field has asked us to do. The profession says, hi, we're committed to diversity and inclusion and whatever other words we can think of that aren't the word race. Um, we're committed to this change and this and this shift in the way that we do things. And we we really need your help. We want to uplift your work and we want you to be out there um, at the forefront. We're going to we'll give you money. We'll, we'll give you resources to do these projects that make us better but then they are nowhere to be found or were nowhere to be found. Um, there's no institutional or profession level protection for the folks who are sort of out on the front lines doing this work to fix a problem that quite frankly, one, we didn't cause and two, we're, we are the ones experiencing the harm from on a regular basis. So it was, the panel was meant to sort of bring all of that to, to light. And it, it really did start some great conversations and out of the panel or after the panel, Nicole um, also put together a, uh, it was called Defeating the Bullies and Trolls in the Library, which was essentially resources. 
a, a symposium to to bring folks together to talk about literal action strategies for how you can protect colleagues, marginalized colleagues who experience harassment because of the work that they are doing, or sometimes just for existing in library in library spaces. Which was, it was a really it was a really great conversation, and out of it came a lot of uh, sort of almost toolkits. Folks folks left with with tools in their pockets that they could actually use at individual and institutional more systemic levels, which is in its way a very great comfort. <laughs> so if if all if all of this had to happen and if it had one good result, it is that toolkits and survival guides and anti-doxing resources, specifically for librarians who experience harassment because of the work they're doing, um, have resulted, which is a good thing. Yeah, I'm really sorry like all that backlash happened. Can you talk about how the LibGuide has changed over the last four years and like where uh, do you see it going in the future? Yeah. So again, one of the one of the biggest things about the guide is trying to not just keep up with content because these are ongoing conversations happening online 24 seven, 365, right? But also to make sure that the guide itself, as much as as much as we're able, embodies the anti-oppressive work that we are highlighting within it. So ways that it has changed. Um, the for one thing, it's expanded, and th this another piece. A very specific piece about anti-oppressive work is is to recognize that there are multiple identities that intersect. Um, the curiarchy is often the way it's described as sort of intersecting intersecting systems of oppression that sort of overall create this like I, I don't know like an Optimus Prime <laughs> like a transformer <laughs> of of oppression and that challenging it has to must always recognize that systems intersect that you can't focus on one. And and certainly can't focus on one at the expense of another because then your your work in one is going to be less valuable if it's valuable at all. So anti-racism must also be anti-ableist, must also be anti-Islamomusic, et cetera. So ways that we did this in the guide, I expanded it by adding some new pages to expand on the conversations happening out in the Simmons campus, but also just conversations happening within these communities. Anti-racism communities are often talking about misogyny, talking, talking about LGBT issues, et cetera. So it got four new tabs, the anti-Thanism tab, which is about uh, neuronormativity and neurodiversity, the queer misia tab, which is about LGBTQ folks, and the other, the other two are anti-fat misia, which is one of the one of the sort of the last remaining areas where prejudice is lauded. It's it's a, like attacking and harassing fat bodies for existing is is applauded as some like moral superiority. Great. And the last one is the anti-Judaismia or anti-anti-Semitism. Um, I couldn't I couldn't really work with with calling the page anti-anti-Semitism, so I went with anti-Judaismia. And I've said Mizia a bunch of times now. That is another piece of a way the guide has changed. When I initially created it, I was using um, terms, uh, phobia terms. So transphobia, Islamophobia, they're pretty recognizable. And most folks understand what they mean, that it means somebody who is bigoted against you know, trans folks or Islamic folks or trans Islamic folks, uh, Muslim folks. So it, it, it made sense at the time. It really worked. And then I encountered a number of conversations talking about how terms that use phobia suffixes um, or frame prejudice as a phobia is a problem. Hi, this is Karen from Editing Again. Here the audio became kind of crackly again, so I'm going to do a quick voiceover of what Stacy said. It's just a few sentences. Problem one, 
because it's inaccurate. Folks are not afraid. Prejudice isn't you being afraid. And the other piece um, are people who have actual phobias, who have mental issues that revolve around unconditional fears or over-the-top responses that can cause them to lose a whole day. Sort of equating bigotry with their experience is further stigmatizing, right? This idea that a phobia, a phobia is something to ridicule someone for having further stigmatizes sort of mental illness and, and mental health issues. So wanting to have none of that, um, we changed the language from phobia to misia and misia it just is also Greek and it means hatred of rather than fear of. It pops up usually as a, a prefix rather than a suffix for like misogyny, right? Um, or misandry. This, in this case, it happens at the end. So that's two actually big ways that it changed because it meant <laughs> creating the, creating the four pages took took quite a bit of time, but also going through and changing all of the places where phobia happened that wasn't in the title, but in, in my own, like in places where I could change it. So I still have links that link to articles that use phobia terms, but the entire guide language all had to be changed, um, which meant going through and looking through all the stuff I had written and fixing it. And now it's done. So that's, so that's good. And I'm trying to think if there was some other big thing that changed. I don't think so. I think, I think those were the those are really the two sort of biggest ways it's changed in the last four years. Changes that are upcoming, a bunch. <laughs> As a matter of fact, um, the guide itself may may only exist in its current form for you know the, uh, maybe another year because what I'd like what I'd like to do is expand it um, and sort of instead of one big giant guide, which is sort of nice, is like oh this one stop shop, um, but it doesn't really do service to to pretend that like oppression is something that can be fixed um, with a quick a quick dip in and out of, of a single resource. So what I'd like what I'd like to do is build the guide out into a suite of guides that would be interconnected, linked to one another and whatnot. But I want to give I want to give more space to to what's being discussed. And I want I want there to be a sense that as you as you do a sort of a deep dive into anti-racism, it will connect to it will connect to the other sort of pieces of the anti-oppression guide, but I want to give it its own its own sort of space. I also want the resource guides for uplifting um, marginalized folks to also have sort of their own space where it's for them, as opposed to also it's it's primary it's literally primarily for them that they won't find a bunch of things they already know. Um, if they want to look at that, they can go to those guides, but for, but um, they'll also have resources that are just for them, conversations just for them, self care prompts, community care prompts. Um, considerations of things that are happening inside the community, right? Anti-racism conversations can't happen without also conversations about colorism, which is something that is that happens externally, yes, but is also an internal problem for, you know, communities of color. So I want those resources to be given the space and the complexity and and the growth that they that they deserve. So yeah, so the changes in the future will be essentially the guide is gonna ex like explode a bit i guess that's really exciting i mean really from when you started this in 2015 in response to the student organizing on your campus it's been five years and you still sound like energized and like there's a million things you want to do with it it's uh <laughs> cool well, <laughs> well i mean right it's still it's still an ongoing problem right of course yeah. and giving it more space also means being able to include things like hi here's anti-racism works that, that's happening in these different areas like right the guy doesn't really address like specific industries or specific institutions and this giving it more space is the opportunity to point folks like hi we have 
some really well-known graduate programs on, you know, at Simmons in particular, that are all service fields, all helping fields, mm -hmm. right? And all of them also have a legacy of, of oppression, um, racism in particular. Um, so the opportunity to sort of point my community and then anybody else that comes to the guide to sort of say like anti-racism in general, but like, let's also look at it in the actual programs and the actual fields you are planning to step into as a graduate. Um, and let's talk about equipping you with what you need to start breaking down these systems as you encounter them in these professions that are meant to be helping other people, not harming them. So that would be fun <laughs> to sort of say like, ha, all of you are complicit. Congratulations. Let's talk about how we start fixing this. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, something that surprised me that I learned in this conversation, because I knew you were the social work liaison library, and I thought maybe this had come from that department. My undergrad, I originally started in social work before I switched out of the program. And one of the reasons was that there was uh, not a lot of integration of anti-oppression into our curriculum. And I found it really hard. And I thought, oh, maybe Simmons is like doing a lot of that. And it like inspired this LibGuide and whatever. And I think it's much cooler that it came out of this student organizing. <laughs> but I can also see how those departments at the at the school could, how that could be really beneficial to be tying that into people's coursework and, you know, what they're going to go on and do after that when they start working in these professions. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that a lot of social justice concepts, um, have have their beginnings in social work, often among marginalized social workers who were sort of out there and in the profession to help to help their own communities. And I have the enormous benefit of not only creating a guide that actually is useful for social work, so that if anybody ever came and said, this guide really doesn't have, you know, curricular value, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we should keep working on it, which by the way, absolutely no one has ever said. Everybody has been extremely supportive. But if it were to ever happen, I can literally just point to the social work folks and be like, oh no, it's super important for them. They literally have a class that's about racism and oppression in social work. It's important that this remains. So it's it's been really it's been really nice that like it can actually it's not something that feels ancillary. It's really sort of there with my with my subject librarianship work with the social work folks and also the children's literature folks. Both of them have both, what I don't know what to call it, sort of like social work wants to do well, but they also have ethics about addressing oppression in their own ranks. And so they are constantly talking about and trying to address a, a continuing issue of oppression within social work as a field. Children's literature does much the same thing. Like, yes, let's produce a bunch of great books and conversations and scholarship and whatnot that addresses these these issues of oppression of inequity for younger readers and then also let's let's definitely take some time to address some of the internal things in fact very recently as sort of protests have been ongoing through throughout the summer there has sparked renewed conversations within publishing for children's literature and within sort of the academic the academic side as well um, which is great to see because it's it's something that needs to be talked about in every facet everywhere yeah that's definitely really important from your live guide you've clearly done like a lot of research and spent a lot of time on anti-oppression can you talk a little bit more about how that informs your work as a librarian yeah absolutely so lots of ways mostly mostly little ways um there you there's the argument that me existing in librarianship is an important anti is, is important anti-oppressive work 
when I was still a student worker at the reference desk, I typically was there at, for like the eight to midnight shift, which is a glorious shift for getting really weird reference questions, especially during finals week. But I, I came on for my shift one evening and uh, I hadn't even like sat down and turned, like gotten logged into what I needed to on the computer before a student came up and I was like, oh, what's up? But she, she looked at me and she said, thank God you came. I have been waiting here for five hours to ask about for, for research help. And I was like, oh my goodness, was somebody not at the desk or was there not like, was there like a line? Like what, what happened? She said, no, it's just everybody that's been at the desk has been white and I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable. My research topic is about Ferguson and student activism um, and, and the ways it links back to the student activism um, in the civil rights movement. And I'm just not comfortable at talking about Ferguson with white folks. And I was like, okay, well then let's, let's talk about and get you what you need. And then, and I, I think about, I think about that student at least once a week. I think about how my presence in librarianship is for that student, all, all of the students like them, who part of what they need to actually make full use of the library and feel that the library belongs to them as a space, as a set of services, as a collection of resources is in part seeing faces that look like theirs. So there's that, there's that piece of it, right? No pressure. <laughs> just, just sit at the desk. It's great. But it also, it also constantly informs me that single aspects of change in my work are never going to work. It has to be more intertwined than that. So when I do information literacy work, uh, I try to make sure that I am exposing students not only to here's how you, not, not, not beyond the transaction is the way to say it, to move beyond the transactional relationship with our resources and saying, you know, you're not just, you're not just in these databases to shop for the five peer reviewed articles that your professor asked you for. Like, let's talk about your topics and let's talk about where you find the ongoing conversation about this, but let's also talk about these systems of information that create these sources, right? They all exist for a purpose. They all have a perspective and it is not it's not neutral. None of nobody creates information for a neutral purpose. That's not how creating something works. Everything created has a reason for existing. Um, and it's often to express a point of view, even if that point of view is also about talking about research um, and, and the results of studies and whatnot. I often talk with my students about peer review um, as an industry standard, not a an inherent or objective good. Not to say that peer review is therefore bad, but rather to say it's an industry standard. It is it is perfectly capable to have a terrible article that does a great deal of damage wind its way through peer review. And that peer review as a system is something that contributes to some not great things in academia. I don't often get that far in the conversation unless I'm one on one with a student who's curious, but it's often a conversation I do have with doctoral students. Um, so the idea of anti-oppression is about unmasking systems, right? And, and sh poking at those assumptions that folks sort of have, the sort of naturalized, invisibilized ideological perspectives um, and work that's happening. Um, it's like that just sort of under underscores the status quo. Like, oh yeah, I need five peer reviewed articles. And it's like, all right, but I want you to also think about it. Are those five the complete view of your of what your topic really entails, right? If you if you want to ask a question about LGBTQ communities of color, if that's if that's sort of what you're focusing on, five scholarly articles, fantastic. But you also need to look at who wrote them. 
are they uh, folks from LGBT communities of color? Um, and if not, think about why not? Think about, think about again, the systems that are producing the information, the folks who are privileged, who get the grant money to study the thing um, that they had to prove was worth studying and worth being given money to do, right? So where else can you find this scholarship or where else can you find um, information about these communities and the not just the problems they are having, but also the interventions they maybe have come up with themselves from inside their community, not from folks outside studying them. So that those kinds of conversations I have on a on a regular basis. It sometimes it makes a faculty member nervous when I start talking about how peer review is <laughs> is not an objective good. But I never leave I never I never leave them saying peer review is bad, so most of them are okay. There's lots of ways you can slot it in. Um, I'm not a cataloger, although Violet Fox would say that's nonsense. Anyone, anyone is a cataloger. And in fact, cataloging work should be done by more folks than have the title of cataloger. Um, but I have, I have lots of conversations about critical approaches to cataloging. Um, I, I very, I'm, I follow the, the hashtag CritCat on Twitter as much as I follow CritLib, which is critical librarianship where these discussions happen about how do we bring critical lenses again that sort of break open assumptions to sort of look at the oppressive systems that are operating behind them in this what well, we've always done it this way sort of approach to work and sort of blowing that apart and saying no actually we don't have to do it this way um, and in fact we shouldn't and we can do so much we can do so much good if we stop and find new ways to do it not not just not just fix the current ways we're doing it, because again, you don't get systems. Systems are built to get the results they get, which means it's you can't call a system broken just because it's resulting in harm. If it's resulting in harm, it was built to result in harm. If you don't want it to cause, if you don't want to be causing harm, then you need a new system, which is often the conversation that's happening um, in these spaces and among these librarians. And the work is really exciting. And so being able to incorporate those little bits of, from, from other folks that are doing this work is really great. Um, and it's move, now moving in, it into sort of virtual settings of like when I don't, when I'm not in front of, when I'm not really in front of students or I don't sort of have them in a physical space, how do we sort of like maintain attention to talk about these issues and also make sure that it's still relevant to them? Um, I can't do a little lecture the way I'm rambling right now. I can't do this little lecture. Um, in front of my class who really just need at the end of the day a way to find the things they need to to so that they can write their paper get a grade graduate and go do the career they want so all of all of that sort of comes into play um, and it's a very it requires a conscious effort to to make happen thank you um, <laughs> I think that's that's a great array of examples of how anti-fashion comes up in librarianship that first story um, made my heart very happy, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad. It is. It's, it's, it's one of the, like, imposter syndrome is very real for all, ki for all kinds of reasons. But I, it helps me often to think about how sometimes me just sitting at a desk is enough to be helpful to a student in a really significant way. And I feel better. So that's nice. Definitely. The follow-up question I wanted to insert in here, because we haven't really touched on it yet, is about children's literature and your work with children's literature. And I and I was wondering if now might be a okay time to kind of bring that in a little bit. Sure. And talk about some of the ways that like slots into this um, puzzle. <laughs> um, how how your work with children's literature also maybe interacts with anti-oppression or 
like how how you think about that work so here's the thing it sometimes it seems like really impossible to think how on earth does this does this actually dovetail with children's literature and then once you really think about it it actually is wildly obvious which is fun it's funny but with if you think about children's literature and YA literature and how it exists as a body of literature it ties in with so many different sort of ideological values we hold as a culture right even even just the conversation as what is the what's the difference between middle grade and YA what is what it, what are what's appropriate content for different kinds of children's literature which which children's books win awards um what do they seem to have what do they seem to have in common what do they seem what seems to be different um but children's literature as the 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 sort of field that produces and reads them so the publishers the librarians the the teachers the K through 12 educators the parents those the conversations of the dearth of diversity the 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 huge need and gap of books that are representative of marginalized identities particularly race have been have is a conversation that's been happening at the very least since what 1965 right in, like right smack dab in the middle of the civil rights movement we had we had sort of major shifts when identity based children's book awards came on the scene um the first was the Sydney Taylor Award swiftly followed by the Coretta Scott King and the um the Stonewall Award so and and more have have happened since then and even so book awards meant to honor them people saying we want to read more of this please please publish more of this publishers saying we want we want to publish more books like this please bring us manuscripts whole imprints being coming on the scene whose entire purpose is to uplift marginalized voices nevertheless the statistics remain very depressing <laughs> where the majority of books center white characters for a white audience and are written by white authors there are there are more like in in just sort of like raw numbers there are more books for for example for black characters there are more more black narratives among children's books but a very troubling chunk of those books that are produced are written by white authors as opposed to black authors so the problems sort of threading through the industry are the problems that every industry has with racism as an example with racism so um the idea of both being embedded with whiteness and the idea of white superiority like you hear things like oh we're not i don't this is a great manuscript but we already have our black book for this year or black books don't don't sell it's a it's a niche market black readers just don't read it's other other nonsense that just sort of justifies producing more white books by white people and despite several movements about pushing for diversity ongoing like it's it's happening right now conversations are happening right now that are both that are calling it out and trying to address it um we still have this this huge this huge gap that then impacts everything else right so the the folks that i support at simmons the children's literature program studies is a is a literary program that that studies children's books and the the pro, actually um we have there's a couple of dual degrees um so 
one major one is the dual degree with librarianship. So folks, often folks who are pursuing, who want to be youth librarians, who to work with kids in a library, um, will get a children's literature degree and an LIS degree at Simmons. And so the conversations about how librarianship perpetuates issues along along issues of oppression, but also I, just ideas about childhood and how much our, our cultural ideas of childhood intersect with our cultural assumptions and biases about disenfranchised groups. So then the idea of like what's appropriate, right? So what books get published for what age group? So like in middle grade, there are so many authors of color have had conversations about how their book has been turned down because it has topics in it that aren't appropriate for middle grade or picture book authors. It's, you know, this isn't appropriate for a picture book. And it's like, well, why? When you say appropriate, what what kind of child are you envisioning? What kind of what kind of child reader do you imagine is picking up this book? And why does a child reader who's a latchkey kid, why does a child reader who is taught from the age of four or five how careful they need to be around police and what they should do if a police officer ever talks to them? Why why do those children not get to see their lives and experiences reflected in the books for their reading age? Those kinds of conversations happening all the time, and it goes it goes in it goes into so many different so many different facets uh, about ways that there's so many different wings of children's literature that sort of perpetuate this. It's not just the publishers who produce the books, it's not just the authors who write them, and it's not just the people who sell them. You also have reviewers who, by the way, are typical for children's and young adult books. Reviewers are mainly made up of librarians and edu and and teachers. So folks who actually, folks typically who work with kids, um, but both of those professions are, I believe both of them are hovering around 80, 85% white, um, and specifically white women. Um, and so when we talk about problems that are perpetuated, um, literally there's so many stops along the way of a book getting to the hands of readers where whiteness just has this massive opportunity to say, to say, nope, this book, this kind of book with this kind of perspective and this kind of character is a better book and it's couched in terms of this is a good book versus uh, an unengaging book or this is a mature book versus an appropriate book um, it gets couched in terms of quality and appropriateness but what it is is really i recognize myself in this book and so i find it to be better that happens among editors it happens among um, peer authors as they are reviewing each other's manuscripts for with comments it happens among reviewers um, and it happens among booksellers and buyers. And so the books that end up on the shelves tend to tend to be representative of a very white view, a very white lens um, of what literature is and specifically what literature is or is supposed to be for children and for teens. We see alternatives. We see more books being published that can do more things um, by centering black people, but not enough. Um, and it continues to be ongoing. Um, and I don't even know how long I've been talking at this point. So I don't know if it answered the question, but only to say that children, children's books are produced by a system like any other and a very sort of complex system that intertwines with librarianship and education. And so all these legacies of how racism can exist and how oppression can exist in those systems is present in our book production as well. Um, the scholarship that we produce about and the ways that we study children's literature also can, if we're not actively challenging it, will end up reinforcing those same biases. And it's 
it's work that's ongoing um, and that ties in, oddly enough, ties in so much with the work I do with anti-oppression education and librarianship, which is handy because it means I, I don't have to split myself in three to do my work. It's actually all kind of goes together. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for walking us through all those connections. And it's really interesting to hear. I mean, obviously, you have such a um, good handle in the publishing industry and, and how all that works, too. And um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So this is the end of part one of this interview with Stacey Collins. We'll release part two next week with a focus on policing in libraries. So we hope you stay tuned and enjoy that episode when it comes out. We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod. That's organizing with a Z and not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com. And our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com, where you can find links and transcripts to the episodes. Music